A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined here in The Spectator offices by Curtis Yarvin, who I wanted to just say you are a neo-reactionary blogger, because every time I read about you in The New York Times or anywhere else, they say you are a neo-reactionary blogger. But I thought perhaps I should just say, you know, how do you see yourself? How would you wow, like to be described? Um, you know, I think I could do a little better than that. I think of myself as America's premier monarchist blogger. You know, by <laughs> monarchist, of course, I don't mean that I'm into this costume monarchy crown Kardashian thing. I mean, I mean a real monarch. I mean less Elizabeth II and more Elizabeth I or even Henry VII. Yeah, well, you've you know, even described Queen Elizabeth II as, as a Kardashian, but yeah, a classy Kardashian. A classy Kardashian. Uh, yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. you know, let, the, let no one question that the Queen has class. Yeah, you know, yeah. but she's no Henry VII, that's for sure. And <laughs> one wonders what Henry VII would make of, of Britain today. But do you recall from the idea of being a, a blogger? Yes, blogger is fair. It's sort of, it's almost old-fashioned now yeah. to be a blogger, like it was a... Definitely a thing 15 years ago. Uh, that was actually the late days yes. of the blogs. And now it's just, you know, I write on Substack. You can find me on graymirror.substack.com. That's gray with an A, the like American all, way. Like all the best grays. Yeah. Like all the best grays. Yeah. Indeed. Well, you know, I thought you were actually killed in Baltimore like a while ago. I had that a lot. You seem to. <laughs> People on Twitter used to go RIP every time I... Uh... I would stay out of that city just in case. Well, I once but... went to I once went to an alt-right party, and, and you'll know about these things. And some guy said, uh, hi, uh, you're Freddie Gray. And he went, oh, cool. I'm I'm Michael Brown. <laughs> I eventually clocked that this was an unacceptable joke that uh, yeah, should no, not be no, no, not, repeated not, on a podcast. Not, not acceptable. So, Curtis, you, you've just arrived in England, so I feel a bit unfair Please. asking you of your sort of impressions. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, my impressions of the place is that I'm, I'm staying in a pod hotel in, in Piccadilly. Yeah. And it seems uh, overrun with tourists. But I've seen... Also, you know, what have I seen of the old country. I flew into Gatwick and I took the train from Gatwick and my feeling upon arriving in East Croydon was that, wow, the Bauhaus really did a number on this country. (laughs) 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 Worse than the Blitz, they say. Really worse than the Blitz. Yes. And, you know, it's of course beautiful to see, you know, you come here and you feel that Yes, it is, you know, Athens to our Rome. But you also feel that there's some remaining ways in which London is still the mistress of the world. And it's sort of, it's beautiful to see that in a way. Used by everyone, is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. It's certainly by the Russians. Uh, um, The uh, the playground of... uh, But yeah, you know, it's like when I talk about... Europe, I often refer to the conditions of Greece under the Roman Empire because, you know, you sort of know all this Greek history from like, you know, the golden age of like Aristotle and Plato and Thucydides and, you know, and you sort of forget that this is a very short period 
in Greek history, sort of the last kind of dying flower of Athens. And Athens, you know, it doesn't die, it lives. But of course, you know, they lose the war to Sparta, they have some issues, and then Finally, is it Philip II who settles Athens hash, or is it Alexander? Maybe it's Philip of the Macedonians mm. kind of settled their hash. But, you know, the greatness of that period, you know, really this kind of axial age is like long remembered. And then the condition of Greece under the Roman Empire is, I think, really interesting and has a lot to say for us today because the condition of Greece under the Roman Empire, the condition of any, the Roman Empire you know, especially in its younger days, is just an agglomeration of former city-states. So, like, free cities. To be a city under the Roman Empire, you govern yourself, basically. Later, in under, like, what some historians call the dominant rather than the principate, that changes a little bit, and central power and central bureaucracy start becoming more and more of a problem. But basically, to be a Greek city-state under the Roman Empire meant that you had no foreign policy and no military, and otherwise things were basically the same. And if you were Athens under the Roman Empire, it was even more special because what Athens became under the Roman Empire was essentially a theme park. It became Athens land. It was still like the best schools of rhetoric were in Athens. And if you're a Roman aristocrat, you send your son to Athens to learn rhetoric. And Plato's Academy still operates until like the 4th or 5th century AD. Yeah. Right. Eventually it's the Christians who shut it down. But it's like still everything is still a going concern. And what's fascinating, and this kind of echoes... You know, The Third Man, the movie The Third Man. And there's this famous line in The Third Man about Switzerland that you might remember where he's basically like like comparing Switzerland. It's kind of ahistorical. He's like, you know, in medieval Italy, you know, they had wars all the time. They were constantly fighting each other. And they had, you know, Raphael and Michelangelo. And they created all of these things. And he's like... This is Orson Welles' is Harry Lyme, and he's like, in Switzerland, they had 500 years of peace, and what did you get? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> now, now, the Swiss were somewhat violent at various times, right? But, you know, this line was apparently completely ad-libbed by Orson Welles. It was not even in the script. <laughs> and yet, you know, Welles really had something going on there. He's, it was really something that he understood. And he, when you look at... Greece under the Roman Empire and Athens under the Roman Empire, and Athens and Sparta both actually are in this condition, you would expect basically that they've been like freed from war. All they have to do is like be at peace and like just live their nice peaceful lives. And strangely, those nice peaceful lives do not produce anything like the plays and poems and the philosophy of Athens when Athens was a sovereign country Mm. that lived by its own sword. And so there's this effect of like, when you lose sovereignty, you sort of, you become like spade in a sense, you become, there's something that you lose and it's just this destruction of vitality. And so you have the sense in which Athens still exists in like 400 AD. Nobody has sacked it yet. The Visigoths haven't yet become a problem. And yet it's just a totally forgettable place. Mm. And so when I think of Europe 
in the American empire, I very much think of Greece under the Roman empire, you know, where the Romans sort of understood perfectly well. They respected the amazing achievements of the Greeks in like creating civilization. They understood that the Greeks were the masters of rhetoric and so forth. And they would, you know, send their kids there to learn rhetoric. But the place is like dead Mm. in a sense. There's a deadness that is basically not present in any nation that has lost its sovereignty. And there's certainly no question that Europe lost its sovereignty in 1945. And as for Britain particularly, do you think there is a strange, you know, people talk a lot about the special relationship and so on, but do you think that's a case of Britain as formerly a great world empire that knows its decline, speaking to America in some very strange ways, to an America that sense it's on the precipice of decline? There's a way in which sort of the baton is kind of transferred almost gradually in things like the Pilgrim Society and like the relationship between the CFR and Chatham House. Yes. And you have a sense or the relationship between, do you know the name William Stevenson, the yes. quiet Canadian? Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, who ran British security coordination during the war, took over like entire floors of Rockefeller Center, basically, and sort of brought up the American intelligence community as a sort of child of the British intelligence community. And so there's like the sort of the deep kind of social connections there that kind of make that a kind of gradual baton transfer. I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, Americans have this thing called the Monroe Doctrine. You might have heard Mm. of it. And in some ways, the international community, as we call it, is our extension of the Monroe Doctrine to the entire planet. Mm. In that, basically, we're like, we don't recognize any regime that we don't support. The meaning of diplomatic recognition itself changed in, like many things in the 20th century. And if you go back, Americans don't like to hear this, but the Monroe Doctrine is actually a piece of British foreign policy. It was basically, it was written by John Quincy Adams, I believe, but it was at the inspiration of Canning. Mm. And the whole idea of Canning, who, what was his line? I brought the new world into... It was showing up my ignorance. I called the new world into existence to something. But basically, the British foreign policy that was... Britain essentially enforced the Monroe Doctrine, and the whole idea of the Monroe Doctrine as a piece of British foreign policy was that basically Spain was not going to get its empire back, and the Holy Alliance was not going to have a presence Mm. in the Americas. And in particular, what this meant is that British trading interests had a free hand across the Americas, which, of course, the Spanish had been at great pains to prevent. This is why soccer, or football, as I believe you call it, Mm. uh, is the national sport of Argentina, because Buenos Aires became this basically almost British colony in South America. Yes. So you had this policy that was nominally American, but the Americans were very much satellite state is putting a little strongly, but they were very much the junior partner in that relationship. And then you sort of fast forward to the late 19th century, and you have this Venezuela dispute Mm. in which the U.S. for the first time is like, no, we're going to enforce the Monroe Doctrine against you, the British Empire. And the Brits are like, what? 
Yeah. You know, and then they're like, I believe Lord Salisbury went to his grave, like thinking they're like, maybe we should have intervened in the Civil War. <laughs> and, uh, by then it was a little late, old chap. You know, yeah. and and so you have this World War One existence there, where from the start of World War One, American industrial and like productive power. And financial power is very much on the side of the allies. You know, the sort of the Morgan interests are kind of dragging us into the war. Mm. And because of, you know, these enormous loans that are being made. And at the end of the war, suddenly there's like, for the first time, there's this just because of the financial disparities that have been created, suddenly Britain is maybe a little bit bankrupt. Yeah. You know, and... That gives the Americans not this, quite as bankrupt as today, but, but not quite as bankrupt as today. And there's this interesting piece that really bears this out that I found, and I still like. This is the only place that I've seen this source, so I'm a little hesitant to trust it. But it's in a biography of Woodrow Wilson written by Herbert Hoover. Hmm. Most people don't know this exists, and Hoover recounts this interesting incident in the Wilson administration. Wilson is on his way home on an American liner, the George Washington, I think. And after, you know, his trip to Europe, Versailles, he's like, you know, fitted everywhere. You know, everybody renames their streets after him, et cetera, et cetera. He's the hero of the new world, come to create peace in the old world, you know, and then he's heading home. And there's this interesting interaction he has where actually the U.S. ambassador to Russia is returning home at that time for health reasons. And the U.S. ambassador to Russia, basically Russia, of course, is like, you know, exploding at this time. And you have this strange situation where the U.S. ambassador to Russia is kind of the ambassador to like Kerensky. And then you have the Red Cross mission to Russia, which is our relationship with the Bolsheviks. And if you read the 14 points, I believe like 0.7 or something is like basically hands off the Bolsheviks because the Bolsheviks have a lot of American friends from day one. And Wilson basically from the George Washington sends this cable to London and Paris where he's like, hey, guys, I'm having a bit of a problem here because... I hear that you guys are supporting these people, the whites in Russia. And these are bad people. These are reactionaries. They're monarchists. They want to restore the old regime. And, like, I can't really figure out why you're supporting them. And what's really disturbing is that, I hate to bring this up, but you guys owe us a lot of money. And, you know, the the, <laughs> the thing is that if American public opinion was to find out that instead of paying us back, you're supporting these reactionaries <laughs> in Russia, which was not, you know, popular. Like, I'm just not sure how public opinion would react to that. Yes. So you might want to think again. And so basically, the extent to which, you know, sort of people recall that America intervened in the Russian Revolution. Mm. And they sort of nominally intervened against the Bolsheviks. Mm. What they were actually doing is sandbagging the effort against the Bolsheviks. So they, like, send forces there, and then the forces basically kind of don't want to do anything and kind of want to retreat and want to lose. And what they're trying to do is prevent, basically, right-wing militarist 
interests, you know, the last of the imperialists in Britain and France mm. from supporting Denikin and, you know, the white armies, yes. basically. And so the extent to which the U.S. basically creates the specter of Bolshevism that is sort of the, like, last, you know, destroyer yes. of old Europe is really quite considerable, well, there were very interesting things that happened, you know, in, in the, sort of the early days of the revolution like, between America and Russia. Mm -hmm. And I think baseball took off briefly. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, and no. Then, I mean, and then Ford, I think, launched a plant in... Oh, oh, yeah, no, I mean, there was a huge amount of... I mean, it's, it's FDR who finally recognizes the Soviets. But the love affair between, you know, the most fashionable people in America and the Bolsheviks, yeah. like starts right away. You have like John Reed, for example. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only only American buried in the wall, the Kremlin. Yes. And from like day one, it's like the way I try to explain this relationship is like, imagine you're a libertarian. Imagine you're a libertarian. And you're like, Honduras has been taken over by libertarians and they're creating the libertarian paradise. And you yeah. get all this like libertarian reporting from Honduras. There's like a the seastead. You know, the seastead sea rising <laughs> off the coast, right? You know, everything is happening, right? And then, you know, some asshole prints some story. Oh, they're killing all the Indians, right? You know, <laughs> I, you know this is just propaganda, right? You know, and, and, and this is the way, you know, my grandparents were American communists and they were Jewish American communists. And this is the way they reacted they're like, this is the promised land. Mm. And the hatred of the Russian regime all across the West, but especially in America, had been like so considerable. Like I have this book that I found by actually one of the founders of Slavic studies in the U.S. I'm forgetting the name offhand. He was funded by the Rockefellers to basically go and essentially raise revolution in Russia. And there's this one episode where she's talking to some like rich old Jewish lady in Chicago and she's like, writes him a check and she's like i hope this check buys the bomb that kills the czar <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of the early days of like u.s like revolutionary foreign policy and like you know nowadays we have the color revolutions right yeah. but it's kind of the same well, thing i mean that's what i wanted to ask you about this foreign policy is that has america ever been able to drop its revolutionary foreign policy excellent excellent question well i think the closest answer in some ways i was just talking about this with someone at lunch and when you look at the golden age of american imperialism in like the 1890s and the spanish-american war which is kind of the apex of like classic american imperialism and it's very much taking taking a tip from the english in terms of their like kind of ideological method because basically they're like, oh, human rights are being violated in Cuba. Cuban maidens are being, you know, like violated, you know, by the brutal Spanish, you know, occupiers, right? And they sort of, all of this like yellow journalism is like ginned up, you know, and then of course the main blows up. Nobody knows why the main blows up in Havana. It's probably just carelessness yeah. you know <laughs> but then they're like ah spanish an evil spanish plot by the evil <laughs> king of spain right you know terrorism terrorism exactly yeah. like so the global war of, in, on terrorism is like wow to win the global war on terrorism we must take cuba and the philippines mm -hmm. and the thing is that it's predatory okay like the spanish american wars is very predatory thing but the thing about the sort of predation of it 
is it's like a very 19th century imperialist predation. And so it has a sort of feeling of something that's like natural and right. Like Spain is the old weak deer, right? You know, the young wolf has got to, to preserve the ecosystem. The wolf has got to eat the deer and, you know, the wolf takes the deer and he really eats the deer. And the U S really governs Cuba and the Philippines and like develops them and does like all the classic imperialist, you know, little Brown brother, half devil and half child thing, you know, it goes full Kipling, right. You know? (laughs) And so, you know, from the sort of liberal premise, like America really goes full Kipling with its like imperial governance of these captured territories. And that's sort of like the high point in a sense, because you have this sort of bloodlust there, but then the animal actually eats Mm. and the carcass is devoured and it's tasty and it's productive. And as time goes on, like the flow of American imperialism becomes more like a a dog killing sheep for fun. And so <laughs> the sort of the thing that sticks in my memory, my historical memory about that is I was reading an interview with a Belgian in the Congo from the late 50s. And most people don't know This has kind of been written out of history, but the Belgian Congo in the first half of the 20th century was like an enormous success. After Leopold, basically, like the Congo was having like regular like 10% a year GDP growth. Like it was really, you know, along comes U.S. foreign policy and they're like, okay great job you've done but now it's over the wind of change is blowing and the wind of change is blowing and you must accept change because you must accept the future and the new way things are going to be and the belgians have to leave Mm. it's just very clear like otherwise they like i mean these are like all the levers that are used on britain at suez right and you know like eisenhower calls up eden and like curses at him over the phone and is like we will not sell you oil what the hell are you doing you know and um you know suez is really the end of the british empire and so shortly i believe it's shortly after that that the congo is basically taken from belgium and given over to like ragged armies of cannibals mm. who basically slaughter and destroy and then eventually you have this insane UN war against Katanga you have the mercenaries you have Mad Mike Hoare like everything goes berserk right. in the Congo and is still nowhere near recovered from it right and so you know some reporters interviewing this like poor Belgian guy who like tried to build a world in the Congo and then has been like driven out by fire and the sword and this Belgian guy is like you know I understand why America would want to steal the Congo. The Congo is an amazing place. It's wonderful. Like, you know, of course you want it, right? What I don't understand is why they would want to steal it and then burn it down. Mm. So you have this sense of like the dog goes out and instead of killing one deer, instead of being a wolf and killing a deer and eating it, he goes and kills 20 sheep and then comes home for his dog food because he just likes the killing. And, you know, I had this, you know, to sort of fast forward, you know, from that into full out modernity. Six or seven years ago, I was at this venture capital event in San Francisco involving sort of a, a contest of young people. I don't want to be too specific here. 
and one of the and they're like they're like the semifinalists who we have to judge and one of these the poor guy who has to go first and giving his two-minute presentation is named abu something and so he has to go first because alphabetical order and he's from syria Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, he's like the best that Syria has to offer, right? But he's also like not going to win because he's like from Syria and his startup is like BS, right? Mm-hmm. And so I go and talk to this guy after the thing. And because I'm an asshole, I didn't talk at all about his like technology thing. I was just like, you know, tell me about the civil war in Syria. And by the way, which side are you on? Um, and and he's like, you know, I'm not really, I don't really have a side. I just don't want a, a civil war in my country. That means he's on the government side. And um, and I'm like, do you know why the State Department started a civil war in their country? And you know, in the Arab world, of course, they're very into conspiracy theories. Everything is like a four cushion pool shot and you're like well because they want to write the pipeline like this and i'm like yeah no do you know why the state department started a civil war in your country because it could because it could and and the thing is you know the people at state who kicked off the arab spring who made that shit show happen i believe the last arab spring democracy that would be tunisia has now fallen back into dictatorship Mm. after like two civil wars 500,000 people killed, something like that. And you remember how people were cheering at that time. Remember Google guy? Remember the Egyptian guy? He's like, oh, you know, the future is, you know, Egypt will be liberal and it will be governed by Google guy or someone approved by Google guy, right? (laughs) You know, and fortunately they managed to avoid a civil war. And they were building little networks. They were always building little networks. They were always building, and they were using Twitter. It was a lovely time, freedom of speech, right? And, you know, the people who decided what actually happened there was that there was kind of a, a little bit of a change of the guard at state with the Obama administration. And you had these old guys who's like, you know, it's the Arab world, you have to be realistic, you know. And then these young guys come in, you know, they just graduated from Yale or whatever, and they're like, you're propping up dictators. (laughs) By propping up dictators, that's sort of American parlance for not overthrowing them when they should be overthrown. (laughs) And, you know, the thing about U.S. foreign policy is so they basically, you know, the young guys win, and so they tried out Obama and he comes out and says things like Mubarak must go, you yeah. know, Assad must go, right? You know, as if well, he's there was like, a red line phase, wasn't there? There was a you yeah. know, you're crossing this red line. Yeah, of course. But yeah. the thing is, you're forced to cross the red line anyway, right? This was yeah. with Gaddafi, right? You know, where it's like, oh, you have to tolerate this rebellion. You can't yeah. do anything about the rebellion. <laughs> and Gaddafi is like, we will exterminate the rats, you know. <laughs> and he gives his rat speech, yeah. which is great, right? And you have basically what that causes you know, the victory of these young guys causes, you know, civil wars in two countries. It causes Egypt almost get to civil war before they have to reverse and have their military dictatorship back and probably causes the death of about half a million people Mm. and has no positive effect whatsoever. And the thing is, if you were at state and you were involved in the Arab Spring, despite it being an utter debacle, that is excellent for your career because you mattered. Yes. You made an impact. You did something. Okay, it didn't work, but that's not your fault. You no. know, and and so... You saw a bit of action. You saw a bit of action. In a way, a military Yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw yeah. a bit of action, right? You know, that's sort of the way Afghanistan was maintained by DOD as like a live fire training training <laughs> range for 20 years, right? You know, and so it's actually this, this incredibly brutal and cynical thing when you basically, you're just like... 
why did we start a civil war in our in your country you know yeah. because we could you know it's like the scorpion and the frog it's like it's by nature right and so you know this excitement and the excitement of like you must remember how well, not just Americans in the UK too just the intoxicating champagne like feeling of like being behind a revolution in someone else's country yeah it's just like everyone when you, when you were talking about rats you reminded me of david cameron gave possibly the most cringe speech i've ever heard Tell me. where he went to libya and he said gaddafi called you rats but you didn't fight like rats you fought like lions <laughs> And even the even the living crowd were like, oh, that's, that's pathetic. <laughs> you could do better than that, surely. <laughs> right, and it's so it's so cringe that it basically, of course, you know, Cameron is trying to sound Churchillian when yeah. he's doing that. But you know, all he's doing is sort of like making you think, well, maybe Churchill was a bit cringe as well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, when sort of this is kind of the reductio ad absurdum yeah. of all of this kind of revolution spreading of the last, you know, it's like if you go back to the 19th century and like Garibaldi and, you know, Garibaldi and Mazzini, you know, just they were exiles in England, you know, they had huge fan bases. They were like, you know, Gladstone goes and describes the what he's described the kingdom of the two Sicilies as something like he's like the last vestige of barbarism or whatever. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I forget the exact terminology. Gladstone as a liberal is very, yeah. very unhappy with the Bourbons. And then, you know, Garibaldi with his 300 men, like it's Garibaldi with his 300 red shirts and cruising right offshore yeah. as the Royal Navy. Yeah. Right. And so this is an exercise of British power and it's very like the exercise of American power that creates the American Philippines and American Cuba where you're just like we've taken this backward thing and we've made a nice modern British you know client state for our merchants to like play and mm. make money in right and so you know did that was that the unification of Italy good for Italy bad for Italy I don't know it happened and again, it resulted in sort of something workable. The example from that century that I always like to remind people of as a cautionary tale is that all of this liberation stuff and all of this nationalism, this is good national, good Italian nationalism is Mazzini, bad Italian nationalism, Mussolini, mm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And the good somehow always results in a British client state. It's very yeah. peculiar, you know? <laughs> and it's like they can sense that you and Britain are good, you know? <laughs> they, can, they can feel your goodness from afar, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and Poland was very inspired by this. And Poland, the Poles, of course, were... Um, part of Russia at that time and they tried I believe three times in the 19th century to revolt against the evil Russian Tsar you know and they forgot just one very small basic issue basically which is that they didn't have a coastline yeah. <laughs> and, but they're still inspired by the propaganda but the Royal Navy can't do anything because you don't have a coastline yeah. right <laughs> and and that sort of 19th century, like, liberal imperialism where it's just like, okay, you can see it as this kind of cynical, brutal thing, but it also, it pays the bills, it gets shit done, and these same kind of diplomatic establishments that were kind of getting shit done for British and American commerce back in the 19th century 
are now like the dog killing sheep. They're just doing it because that's what it does. And do you think social media and the internet actually makes everyone far more involved in the entertainment Oh, absolutely, aspect? absolutely. I mean, do you know Mrs. Jellybee from Bleak House? From yes, Dickens? Yeah. It's like we're all Mrs. Jellybee now, yeah. right? Mrs. Jellybee is a passionate supporter of the war in the Ukraine. You know, Mrs. Jellybee is a character in Dickens' Bleak House, and she practices what Dickens calls uh, telescopic philanthropy, <laughs> which is a wonderful term, and she neglects her whole household and everything around her while dedicating all of her resources to the inhabitants of Boryobulaga on the Niger River. Mm. This was actually based on a real thing, which was the Niger expedition in the 1840s, which was a classic piece of liberal imperialism where they're like, we're going to go to Niger and help these poor natives grow cotton. We think cotton could be a sort whole thing is a shit show, yeah. like, you know, tropical disease, everybody dies. It's a disaster, right? You know, but it makes Mrs. Jellybee, who's like, you know, sending her savings to this thing, feel good. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of like feel good liberal imperialism whose goal is to feel good. And because its true goal is not to do good, but to feel good, it does enormous amounts of evil. Mm -hmm. And yes, definitely sort of letting people get a taste of that drug through social media. You know, you put the Ukrainian flag in your Twitter profile. Yeah. I just you found know. it was weird that sort of people, not nutty people, kind of, you know, very respected journalists in Britain with their blue texts and so on, they would post a video of like a Russian tank being blown up and maybe, oh. even, maybe even a corpse or something. Maybe even a and, corpse. And, and they and would say something like, yeah. Or, you yeah. Know, or like the people that are excited about, you know, Dugan's daughter being blown up. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of hard-ons out there. That's really disturbing and weird. There was a story in the New York Times like three or four days ago, which was accompanied by this like beautiful picture of like a Ukrainian terrorist in a skull mask. And he's like a hero because he goes into like Russian controlled Ukraine and blows up car bombs and there's this line where he's like anyone who would drive that car would be a traitor you know yeah. and did you, you see the, the hello from London thing no the, what was that the donors are sponsoring missiles that say hello from London it's amazing and these are peace activists they're these are private people, peace activists they're, yeah. they're peace activists right and they're just like you know yeah. contributing to like bombs and like and it just shows the like insanity of that sort of way of thinking and it really like that way of thinking is really really deeply part of anglo-american foreign policy for the last 200 years and it's been reduced to this sort of reductio ad absurdum of like hello from london you know the liberal imperialist <laughs> bomb that blows you up you know and it's like you know peace through death right you know it's it's ridiculous it's orwellian right you know and and, and it just goes to show that like anyone can believe anything in their pursuit of this and they can basically believe that they're like finding peace through like you know yeah. crowdfunding bombs <laughs> it's like black humor it's so creepy it's funny yeah. right the hello from london thing is just like so it's appalling and yet it's a pattern that's been happening for 
a couple of centuries and that may keep happening for centuries more. Well, that's and, something you talk about a lot about how, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people like to think that we're always at sort of historical great junctures and, yeah. that, and that somehow the sort of liberal empire is in decline now because it's so yeah. obviously, it was, liberal countries are so obviously bad at doing it. So we must be reaching well, we're some good point at, of... We're bad at building, but we're, you know, it's like the dog that kills sheep. Like, we're good at destroying. Yeah. We can do the destroying part just fine. Yeah. You know? And then when it comes to, like, I mean, I'll admit that I... This is really painful. I believed in the war in Iraq. I believed right. in the invasion of, of Iraq. Right. I was a neocon. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, I love this confessional tone. And I really believed in it. I was like, come on, we did it for Germany. Why can't, you know, and it's like, honestly, if the U.S. invaded Germany now, there would be a civil war in Germany 30 years later. <laughs> and And yet, you know, the power of U.S. foreign policy is such that half of me, this is a little far-fetched, but, you know, it's like when they roll out Obama and put Assad must go on his teleprompter. I'm looking at this and I'm like, you know, if they rolled Obama out and put Merkel must go on his teleprompter, he could probably start a civil war in Germany. You know? <laughs> and it's just like you, you don't really see the purpose of like U.S. foreign policy as basically like global arson. Mm. And that's what, you know, when you basically bring down... Qaddafi or Mubarak sort of the mentality of like I'm reaching out and creating freedom and I see that in this country foreign country that I've never been to know nothing about but I know that in this country there is one stone on top of another and that bottom stone is being oppressed yeah. and therefore <laughs> we must blow it up right and and like and now there is no stone on top of another mm. and we've created freedom and you know this is like the cost of this like the monetary cost of this i mean a lot of money goes into funding state mm. right the monetary cost of this is like sort of trivial in terms of like the cost of like human destruction i mean you can go around the world and find places that were completely fine in 1960 and now are just incredibly scary places to be. Mm. There's a lot of that. So, you know, that sense in which you're basically, like if you go back to the Monroe Doctrine, yeah. sort of the original Monroe Doctrine was like, okay. I thought you were no, talking about Portland there for a second, or, or Chicago or something. <laughs> you're I, talking about the world. Yeah, the right. world, right. If you go back to the Monroe Doctrine, the original Monroe Doctrine is... Okay, no European kings ruling over the Americas. Yeah. And then, you know, Napoleon III has this brilliant idea. It's like, well, well uh, you know, the Americans seem busy with their civil war. So we'll appoint, how about a real emperor of Mexico? Surely mm. you won't object to an emperor of Mexico. He's not being, it's not colonial. And then the Americans get finished with their civil war. And the first thing they do is basically, they basically go and talk to Napoleon III. And they're literally like, yeah, you know, we have this big army. It's not really doing anything right now. So your little colonialist adventure down in Mexico, uh, yeah, that's over, right? You know, and then Maximilian is like, no, I am one with the Mexican people. I will stay behind. And, you know, he gets his, uh, he gets his ass shot. And... 
so the rule, and they also try to have an, a, you know, an empire in Brazil, you know, they had an emperor of Brazil. And so the rule then extends to no kings or emperors or anything old regime mm. in the Americas. Okay, that's fine. We don't need kings. We'll have dictators, right? And you have people like Porfirio Diaz in Mexico, or to give it its true name, the way of España, and um, the uh, I like that name. And um, it's a guilty pleasure. Right? Okay. Um, uh, you know, a man needs simple loves. You know, dead naming and Paul Rouget. You know, and. And animalistic now, metaphors. Indeed. And Woodrow Wilson is like, you know, when Dios like leaves the building, Woodrow Wilson is like, okay, no, you can't have another dictator. That's over now. You need a constitutional president. And then the radicals in America, including like John Reed or supporting Pancho Villa, mm. who's this insane bandit. And basically that kicks off the Mexican Revolution, which that's mm, only killed like a million people, maybe in a million and a half, small potatoes, right? You know, and leaves Mexico in the state. Of, I mean, if you go to Mexico, basically anything that functions in Mexico was built either during the Porfiriato or is actually colonial and sort of kicks off this like degringolade of, of Mexico into like revolution from which it really hasn't ever completely recovered yes and you know the same you know john reed who's like the typhoid mary of like harvard revolution ends up and ends up in russia gives russia you know the treatment right (laughs) and russia still has kind of maybe recovered a little bit you know and you have this basically sort of epicenter of world revolution going around and doing this most people don't know they sort of think of America as anti-Castro. If you actually read about the Cuban Revolution, you know, it's like three guys in the hills, and then Herbert Matthews of the Times goes and interviews them, and then it's 30 guys, you know, whatever he interviews, he's like, this is the future of Cuba, you know? And then at the State Department, they all read the New York Times, and they're basically like, okay, this is how we'll make sure that the future of Cuba is truly Cuba. We'll stop selling arms to Batista, right? And so basically state overthrows the government of Cuba, yeah. In order to get a nice liberal in there, and the liberal turns out to actually prefer the Soviet side of the fence. Yes. And, you know, so you've basically, you know, you've kicked off the Cuban Revolution. And really, like, state and CIA are, like, unequivocal in the support of Castro. There's this, you can go and find the testimony of, like, one of the, the last American ambassador to Batista. Mm. And he was a political appointee. He didn't agree with these people, right? And he's basically like, yeah, this was a basically foreign service design revolution. And so, the I mean, Castro comes to like New York in 56. He's like treated as hero. Yeah. He speaks at the UN. You know, everybody like Norman Mailer writes the most embarrassing things <laughs> about Castro, right? You know, and so... This is just sort of yet another case of like America as the typhoid Mary of revolution. In fact, you can go back all the ways to the, you know the days of George Washington. And George Washington in his farewell address, you maybe know about the farewell address where mm. he sort of preaches this like 
you know, what later becomes called isolationism, where he's like, let's let the Europeans their quarrels, you know, they have like kings and stuff. Of course, they have wars, you know, with their stupid kings, you know, mm. but let's not worry about that, you know. And you're like, oh, wow, you know, what a dignified perspective. And what you don't realize when you hear this is, do you know the name Citizen Genet? Nice. He's the ambassador of revolutionary France to America. And he comes, he's a Jacobin and he comes to America. And like the Democrats, Democratic Republicans at the time, basically he's like, okay, let's have a Jacobin revolution in America. And he makes himself such a nuisance that he has to be declared persona non grata. <laughs> but, you know, he finds like there are definitely American Jacobins who want to go like full reign of terror yeah. in the U.S., and, you know, Jefferson is like, you know, Thomas Paine, of course, actually goes to France and gets caught up in this garbage. Yeah. Right. Uh, Jefferson is like, oh, you know, the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of like, you know. And so you have this sort of feeling that as soon as the American Republic is created, it sort of becomes this like primary tumor of revolution, blood and death. Yeah. And that virus is sort of always restrained enough in America by like our sort of native aristocracy. It's a little like Dutch elm disease, which actually comes from China, where the Chinese elms are mostly immune to Dutch elm disease. And this is why Britain and America, despite being, I mean, you have people like Richard Price in the UK who are like, you know, there are all these like correspondence clubs that are corresponding with the Jacobins. Mm -hmm. You must know about Burke's collection of letters. Burke is basically, he's like, yeah, like, you know, 10% of Englishmen support the Jacobins and we're like in a war against them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole French Revolution is kind of this outbreak of Anglophilia mm. among the French elites. And so you sort of, to see the Anglo-Saxon world, as they say in France, basically as this sort of source of this revolutionary virus in the same way that sort of China is the source of Dutch elm disease. Yeah. But the Chinese elms are basically more or less immune. Yes. And so you never have one of these really sanguinary, crazy French or Russian style revolutions in England, in America, but... You have, like, the American and English ideas are always front and center yes. in these revolutions. What is Marx? Marx is an English gentleman. Mark, you know, and he's a naturalized English gentleman. Mm. To be sure, he's a German Jew, but he does all his work in the British Library, yeah, right? Right down the street. And so, you know, to sort of have, like, in my ideal world... This is a fantasy. But like in my ideal world, Anglo-Americans would feel the same level of guilt about this predatory pattern that basically Germans feel today. Yeah. And the fact that the pattern sort of continues down to the present and shows no signs at all of stopping is like really incredibly sick and twisted and disturbing. But do you think that Americanism... Mm -hmm. is a religion in the sense that it... Because we talked about you know, yes. the revolutionary spirit and so on. Yes. The, the belief in America, or you know, Shining City on the Hill and all that, yes. it's so ingrained in the American psyche that America cannot stop wanting to be revolutionary. Yes, yes, yes. And it goes back even before... I mean, 
So there's this wonderful pamphlet by Daniel Defoe called Shortest Way with the Dissenters. It's a really wonderful piece because it was actually Defoe himself was a dissenter. He was a dissenter journalist, and he wrote this piece as a piece of black propaganda, essentially, that was intended to be believed as if a high Tory had written it. And it was like a level of high Tory extremism that was basically not known in the day. He's basically writing this, like basically arguing for treating the dissenters more or less the way Mary Tudor would have treated them. He's like de heretico comdorendo. You know, he's like, I'm not saying, but you know, what's interesting about it is he's like, basically like if these dissenters, these Whigs, you know, are allowed their way, then our like glorious monarchy will crumble into a republic. And he has this brief mention of America in there. And he's like, basically, we've been so lenient with these fuckers, if you'll excuse my French, that we let them go off to the new world and build their own, you know, country there. Yeah. Basically, this is at a time when, you know, Americans are like insisting up and down in like the 1770s that, oh, we never meant, it was only a last resort of independence. We were just so oppressed, right? And here's Defoe writing in like 1706 or something. He's like, yeah, they have this like de facto independence thing going on, (laughs) right? And, you know, that's just an example of how, you know, we've been like lenient with these these fuckers, you know, and we should have deported them all to the West Indies to basically be like cotton slaves, yeah. right? Which was done in some cases. And what's fascinating is sort of the like the modernity of the right versus left conflict and also the prediction, which is black propaganda. Defoe didn't mean any of this stuff, but actually what he's saying is true. He's like, basically, if we tolerate this, like, Whiggism and this, like, Republicanism, we're going to end up right back in the Cromwell days, and we're going to basically lose our monarchy, Mm. which has indeed happened, you know, and I guess you have to still have this, like, fake thing, right? But, you know, the... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and still real on paper yeah yeah there you go yeah. she saw us the power she could she could veto acts of parliament if she wanted mm. last time that was done queen anne 17 yeah sorry. um and, and i think she only did it once yeah. and i mean why anne doesn't restore the stewards who the hell knows right and she is a steward well let's we've got to bring it back to america let's Americana. bring it back to america bring let's to bring america. it back to america but but so here's a story from that period which basically is going to seem really modern. This is a true historical story. It's the story of the Angel of Hadley. Hadley is a small town in Massachusetts. And in King Philip's War, which is the 1670s, I believe, there's this incident that happened in Hadley where, you know, sort of everything's been at peace for a while. Then King Philip is, you know, is an Indian king. And he's like, no, we're going to exterminate all these goddamn whites. Mm. You know, and he, he gets pretty close. He does, you know, it's a real touch-and-go thing. And this town of Hadley, which is this nice little English dissenter Puritan town, suddenly finds itself under attack by the Native Americans. And they're like, we're all going to be scalped by first peoples, right? You know, and (laughs) give it up. There's nothing to do. And then suddenly an angel appears. This angel takes the form of an old man. And he's wearing really weird clothes that nobody's ever seen before. And he, like, comes out and he's like, I know what to do. Follow me. He's like, you're going to put the cannon here. You're going to do that. You're going to do this. Hmm. They fight off the Indians. Oh, excuse me, the first peoples. And um, the... But these um, are Protestants, right? Yes. 
Yeah. These are all apparitions. Yeah, the apparition. But this happens. This Mm. is real. And, you know, yeah, angels are not really a Protestant thing, but, like, this actually happens. And a great American named Thomas Hutchinson, who wrote this wonderful critique of the Declaration of Independence called Strictures on the Declaration. If you go, it's the funniest thing ever. And he uh, he was also a historian. You know, his, like house and library were burned by the Boston mob. He was, of course, a royalist, and, you know, it all ends in tears. But Thomas Hutchinson, in his younger days as a historian, looks into this affair of the Angel of Hadley, and he figures out what happened. What happened is, as you may know, in the Restoration, they have this wonderful idea called the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion, which is absolutely brilliant. And the whole idea is like, okay, this Cromwell thing, total shit show, rebellion, like let's dig them up and hang them again. But let's have peace. Let's chill out. Let's not have like massive violence. And, you know, so we're going to have an amnesty for basically everyone involved in this shit show, except the regicides. The so-called jury that, quote, tried, unquote, Charles I. All of these people got to die. And so the people on this jury don't really take well to this. And so what some of them, like two or three of them do, is a very logical thing. They flee to this dissenter colony. Like Cromwell himself at one point considered emigrating to America. They flee to this, you know, colony of basically Cromwellites Mm. across the Atlantic Ocean. And even after they flee, things are such in New England that these regicides can't, like, live openly, like, flouting the crown. So the Angel of Hadley turns out to be actually this Civil War general named General Goffey, <laughs> um, who was one of Charles I's, quote, judges, unquote. And basically, he's hiding in an attic like Anne Frank. And, uh, <laughs> and he comes out, and he's still like a military man. So he's actually real. Yeah, he's yeah. actually real. Right, right. right, he's just a real person. <laughs> and he's like dressed in weird old clothes because that's the clothes he has. Right, you know? He's actually a real person. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a sort of, you know, 17th century moment where you sort of glimpse kind of modern politics in the world of the 17th century. (laughs) Or if you read, have you ever read Clarendon? You know Clarendon, Henry Hyde, Earl of Clarendon. Oh, the Earl of Clarendon. Yes, yes, yes. It's a lovely, uh, you know, it's 4,000 pages, and I admit I've only read the first 2,000, which is the Civil War period. And you start reading about the English Civil War through the eyes of this participant who starts out as a liberal and becomes a conservative in many such cases. Mm. And he's just appalled by, like, the tactics of the libs, basically. You know, and people like, you know, Hampton and Pym and who are, you know, generally considered heroes of democracy or whatever, or like Henry Vane, the younger, who's just the worst. And you're just like, you're reading this and you're like getting through the like sort of archaic, you know, 17th century prose. This was first, the Clarendon Press was actually established to publish, Mm. you know, Clarendon's memoir in the early 19th century. It was not published until then. And you're reading this and you're just like, you know that that reaction shot of Leonardo DiCaprio where he's like, you're just like, the libs, they never change. You know? <laughs> and, uh, they never change. <laughs> and, and also, 
the conservatives never change and basically they're always at loggerheads with one another they're always like you know all the people in charles the first entourage are like competing for this or that they're like there's all this infighting you know they're not on the same page ever at all some of them are more liberal some of them you know want to bring back mary tudor you know and it's just such a modern you know experiencing the english civil war which is like this fusty old thing from textbooks as if it was like modern living politics to the extent where you read this and you have to pick a side right nobody picks a side in like the wars of the roses or whatever right you know there's no like lancastrian historians writing biased pro lancastrian you know (laughs) you know anti-yorkist you know but you feel immediately that the English Civil War kind of belongs to modernity in a way because people are reacting in this very, very modern way. And so when you basically sort of trace this like kind of sinful feeling of like revolution for, you know, sort of driven by like kind of not empathy, not love, but like vanity and ambition Mm. and you sort of you learn to see behind the sort of mask of empathy and love like the vanity and ambition and you see that like across time periods yeah you get a really strong sense of this like kind of revolutionary bacillus that you know yes i mean it's originally english you know but do you think that's why a lot of trad cats like you is they think they see a hatred of protestantism in you uh yeah i mean you know there's certainly what a catholic in the era of mary tudor would have said was that you know protestantism is the royal road to atheism Mm. and so indeed it has proved (laughs) and so at a certain level you've got to acknowledge that and the i mean and of course you know the irony is that you know at the time you know the the protestants are really much more godly Mm -hmm. than the cavaliers my god i mean what the cavaliers are protestants too but you know the they're anglicans which is like not very protestant to be honest and um when you connect sort of the puritan spirit with the kind of modern American liberalism in a way. And at first, you know, you're taught as an American that these are the the farthest things from each other. And like, you know, we've moved past all of this Puritanism. And, you know, when you sense kind of, if you look at like Harvard since 1636, and you sense sort of the continuity of the Puritan mindset and the way like wokeness as some call it. I try to stop using that word because uh, the woke no longer use it, but uh, there's sort of no better excuse. When you when you see sort of how wokeness emerges out of Puritanism and kind of, you're just like, okay, yes, Cromwell is like incredibly godly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's not a, you know, transgender activist and yet you know it's hard to see Cromwell as a transgender activist uh and yet there's this kind of continuous thread it's like learning that like elephants evolved from an animal the hyrax which is the size of a rabbit or whales used to walk on land you know and you're just like oh yeah actually this is the same thing yes and that's why yeah I mean I think that that sense in trad cats that like 
sort of this is all like one I mean I'll take it even farther back to Shakespeare because I'm I'm happen to be an Oxfordian right I will defend you know the honor of the 16th Earl of Oxford who actually wrote these plays and you know one of the things if you read Shakespeare even without that in mind you'll notice that Shakespeare wrote all of them Yes, and and Shakespeare is incredible. Whoever wrote these plays was incredibly reactionary, right? You know, it's very, very hard to find even a trace of democratic sentiment in Shakespeare, whereas anti-democratic sentiment is everywhere. And there's one line, I think, I forget, maybe it's Twelfth Night, where Shakespeare is like, uh, has this sort of tossed off line. He's like, I'd as leaf be a politician as a brownist. And a brownist is what was called later, it's a follower of this Reverend Brown, it's what was later called an independent or a dissenter or a Puritan. Basically, Shakespeare in the 16th century is harshing on Americans. Yes. (laughs) And the, like, even into the 20th century, I think the sort of the pilgrims were called like the brownest, you know, like, like colony, basically. And so that sense of sort of like this being a rebellion against the entire sort of old world and the old sort of, you know, Shakespeare is, of course, is so wonderful because he half looks forward to modernity and he half looks backward to the age of chivalry. Mm. And he clearly sort of regrets the passing of the age of chivalry, which is happening which you would expect from an Earl and not from an illiterate clever from Stratford. And um, <laughs> this is what the Shakespeare stuff always boils down to, though, doesn't it? It's that people don't think a, a peasant boy could be that, in, or not a peasant boy, but a, a farm boy really could be that intelligent. Well, it's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of also, you know, the immense learning. You know, yes, you could be intelligent, but like it would be, you know, Elegy in a Country Churchyard, the yep. Thomas Gray poem, you'd end up in the Thomas Gray poem, basically. <laughs> One of two things would happen if you were a smart kid from the middle of nowhere in Elizabethan England. Mm. Either some church person would find you and be like, oh, this is a bright kid. We need to send him to, like, you know, the Scholarship Academy. The church played that role throughout the pre-modern era where they would basically do their own kind of informal 11 plus, essentially, Mm. and find bright kids and pick them out. And Cardinal Woolsey was a butcher's son, right? There is social mobility Mm. in Tudor England, but there isn't, like, mysterious social mobility. There's no, like, you don't submit your plays to the Globe Theater by sending in a stamp self-addressed envelope, you know? And, like, that's not how it works. Like, you couldn't be, like, betrayed or J.D. Salinger in, like, Tudor England, right? And so, I mean, we can, we can, yeah, I don't want to go down the thread of Oxfordianism, but I will defend it very vigorously. Well, let's talk about that later, because I mean, yes. I'm, I'm fairly ignorant, but, but that is an interesting debate. I think, first of all, we should, just before we wrap right. you, you can up, rein us in. You can, you rain, can rein us rein in, in and wrap And I'm going to ask you very boring uh, Boring questions. questions. But let's not boring, boring. I don't think these are boring. But I think uh, for a lot of our... Uh, you can ask boring questions, and I'll, I'll give funny answers. For, <laughs> That's what I've been doing so far. <laughs> so for our listeners who are wondering who on earth I've got on this podcast, uh, I, did, <laughs> I, did, I did give an introduction. But I mean, so there was this article that got a lot of attention recently mm-hmm. in Vanity Fair called, what was it, uh, Peter Thiel is placing yeah, his They have bets. to get Peter Thiel in the title. Peter Thiel so is, you know, is like, betting yeah. on betting yeah. on you as the new right. It got a lot of attention, this I article. I am not funded by... Okay. Uh, right. I know, I didn't care about that. I'm not going to ask about that. But James Polk, who wrote it, I think it was, it was a well-written piece, and I'm yes. We've had him on our podcast. Yes. Uh, he seems like a, a good guy. 
And he he sort of identified this new right thing, which I think people have been talking about a lot. I believe someone counted the number of times the phrase new right has been used. The number, and there's been at least seven in just the post-war American yes. era. Yeah. So I'm a little like, so you know, everything is the new right. Er, yeah. Well, it's it happens and then it it's new and then it dies and it's new and yeah. then it dies. The right always dies. You know, yeah. uh, you two are going to die actually. Well, and the old right was yes. is what, what perhaps you're more interested in, right? I well, mean, you know, there is the like when you say the old right, generally what you mean is the pre-World War II American. I mean, you know, Justin Raimondo. Yeah, well, he was. He I mean, he was about. of course much more recent than that, but you but, know, but he what was, he wrote about. Yeah. Yes, he, yeah. absolutely. The world of Kaft and Hoover and, you know, the original America first. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, they're Albert J. Nock, you know, is kind of my favorite writer from that period. Francis Nielsen, who was an MP, actually kind of a transatlantic figure. He wrote in 1915, he wrote what I think is in some ways still the best book about World War One. It's called How Diplomats Make War. Um, and uh, sort of points the figure finger at Lord Grey, you know. Yeah. And uh, you're familiar with that debate, probably. Grey with an E, yeah. Yes, 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 yeah. yes the European way. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, how do you, re how do you respond? Because it's become, you've become a sort of cult figure in a way do you, I know you're wincing at that but I, but, I mean there's a sort of fashionable interest in you. you know the thing is that that if you look at one mistake that people constantly make when trying to be relevant or meaningful or do things that matter is they make this classic egalitarian mistake of believing that all men are created equal and you know that may as be but if they're created that way, they certainly don't stay that way. And so, yeah. you know, what you will find... In the eyes of God. Is in the eyes of God, but yeah. not necessarily in the eyes of man. Yeah. And the, in the eyes of man, actually, we're very unequal. And if you look at the way that uh, fashion works, which is obviously something they understand very, very well... Vanity Fair, uh, <laughs> when you look at the way that fashion works, it always flows downward. It never flows upward. And so when you're basically saying, okay, I have these ideas. I want to find the largest possible audience. You're doing the wrong thing. You basically, if you want to find the largest possible audience over time, you need to go not to sort of the bottom of the pyramid and like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I love like deep America. I love middle America. You know, I love, you know, when on Tucker Carlson's internet, you know, thing, I love speaking to these people and they're just great people. I love like middle Americans are so nice. Like if you've never experienced that, go to like a place like Reno, you know, and you'll just be like, wow, people are so nice. Mm. You know, I was talking to a friend, I was hanging out with a friend in uh, Malibu recently and, you know, which is the chicest of chic California. And he's like, you know, nobody ever comes to Malibu and it's like, oh my gosh, people in Malibu are so nice. You know, <laughs> that doesn't happen. So, you know, these people are great, but, if you want to propagate ideas in any sense, your ideas are going to go a lot farther if they go through Malibu than if they go through Reno. If they go through Manhattan, you know, rather than Monongahela. And well, you're talking about this slightly disgusting term, thought leadership. 
Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, slightly disgusting terms. I'm actually making them as disgusting as possible because basically <laughs> ideas are fashions. They're sort of, you know, nothing else than this. And if you have something that you want to say that you want people to hear for whatever stupid reason, you're vain, you think that you're right, but you're also vain, you know, um, you know the people that like it or not that you need to talk to are the most fashionable people because ideas flow downward from there. And this is a mistake that I just did this incredibly fun thing, which is that I went on the American show, uh, The Young Turks. Uh, you should watch my Young Turks appearance. I'm really grateful to the host, Jenk Uyghur, for having me on. This is a hardcore, very really a hardcore progressive scene. And yeah. so I was basically, when I went on this show, I was prepared for a very strenuous conflict, but my goal was also to make friends and be nice. Yeah. And like for making, which is just, we should explain, it's hardcore left. Hardcore left. Sort of pre-dirtbag left, I think. Pre-dirtbag left, you would say in a way, but very, yeah. very like, you know, sort of, really strong and edgy left. And I was sort of prepared for, for a fight on this, but I actually didn't get a fight because I was nice and super nice and super respectful and not submissive at all. Yeah. And the response that I got was just like, it sort of, it brought out the best. And like we had this pleasant and interesting and informative conversation. And I'm just like, if your goal is not to sort of make more culture war, but to make less culture war, and you're like, one way to do that is to basically say, I really would like to be able to speak to the Tucker Carlson audience and the Young Turks audience. And like, I don't want to like harangue or like be mad. I mean, you know, American progressives are my people. Like my grandparents were American communists. They were Jewish New York communists. And they would actually never use that word mm. to me. They would never admit. It's only because of my parents that I know that they were actually card-carrying communists. I don't know if you carry your card. Yeah. I think you have a card. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they had a card. <laughs> right, you know, carrying it, like, well, you're going to get carded, you know. <laughs> like, you know, they're probably... The, in the drool company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> you go to the KGB bar and you, you know, and, uh, and they would never use the word communist with me they would yeah. always say progressive and actually the word progressive not only was it used at the time you know the word progressive has been a euphemism for communist in the english-speaking world since about 1930 yeah. there were progressives who were not communists sort of like teddy roosevelt before then since the 20s it's basically been a euphemism for communists today's progressives don't even know that no, but they think they're liberal. They, they have no idea sort of where this... But the word progressive, even in the Venona dispatches, which are like secret messages from KGB agents in America back to Moscow, mm -hmm. when they use the word progressive, it means communist sympathizer or communist, yeah. right? And so I'm talking to my grandmother. This is like the last sort of cogent conversation I had with her before she fell down the stairs at Juilliard and broke her head. And I was like, you know, just asked her straight out. I'm like, so I hear that you and grandpa met at a communist party meeting. And she's like, oh, no, no, 
no, no, no. That was the um, American League for Peace and Freedom or something. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, grandma, like Google is a thing. <laughs> and, and so like the sort of Americans sort of don't even know their own history like at this level. Like 1% of Americans who would use the pro- word progressive understands like the sort of course and flow of that word over time. And in some ways, when you talk to people who call themselves that without knowing where it came from, it's like, you know, like in New Mexico, there are these populations, for some reason, a lot of like crypto Jews from the Spanish empire wound up in the Americas and wound up in the most distant place possible, which is basically New Mexico. And so there are these families in New Mexico that have these like Jewish rituals about like folding clothes and candles and stuff. They have no idea that they're Jews. They're just like, this is something we always did in our family. We don't know why. Right. You know? And so that's sort of the the like the legacy of like American progressivism where people don't understand that they're like have this like deep connection to like John Reed and you know, Ten Days It Shook the World. And it's stuff. interesting you say because I think yeah. in, in England progressive has become because liberal of course means different things. Yes. And particularly in England we don't have that kind of liberal, you know, liberal is not the kind of right. Yes. Yeah, word liberal, yeah, you have the you And know, so I think the Manchester for, liberal right, for a yeah. lot of English writers and 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 pundits and so on, progressive became a handy swap. Yes. For liberal. Right. So you would just say oh, these are progressives or whatever. Right. But no right. one actually thought about But it. yes, I mean, you go back to, you know, the labor rights of the 30s, right? You know, mm. and again you have the sort of intimate connection which sort of people later kind of you have the split between the u.s and the soviets sort of that happens between 45 and 47 yeah if you read like mainstream media like the equivalent of mainstream media from like 1943-44 or whatever that's Office of War Information, OWI, which is sort of the mainstream media when it was a government organization. You read OWI, propaganda, and like the Soviet Union is the best thing that ever happened. You know, there was this wonderful film, Mission to Moscow. Like, you know, yeah. all of America between 1941 and 1945 is like being taught to love the Soviet Union unconditionally. Did you have a communist phase? No. Never you had a neoconservative phase. I had a neoconservative. Well, it's yeah. Trotskyist. It's the same thing. Same thing. Right? You yeah. know, it's yeah. it's like but you were never a sort of you were never. I, I'm never a Stalinist. I was never you know, unlike my my family heritage. But no, I was never a Stalinist. But you know, I, I sort of the attraction, like the Byronic attraction of like the sense of power that it gives you. It's like most people have had a phase like that, and leaving that phase for a lot of people. I think feels like giving up drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it feels exactly like giving up drugs. It's like basically I used to get high on communism yeah. all the time yeah. until I realized <laughs> that I was just wasting my life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and and because it's so intoxicating, it's yeah. so byronic, it's so like but it's this just this destructive addiction. And so in a way, like, you know, you mentioned the tradcaths earlier. You know, I'm just like did I consider doing that? Sure. Did I consider like doing that and like raising my children in the church? Yes, I considered doing that. And if my wife had been into it, I might well have done it. But it also sort of feels like like the fakeness of it sort of disturbs me. I'm just like, it feels like a, a LARP, if you know the term. Yeah. And like I could never quite 
quite do that, but I like I do respect the people that do it. Actually, you know, more a lot of the hardcore people like Catholicism is not hardcore enough. They need yeah. to be Eastern Orthodox. And yeah. um, well, there's a lot of people saying they, they do so much sort of cocaine on Saturday night that they can't quite get to mass <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> well, that, that's really the worst of it. They're not, you know, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of you know, it's like. Helen Andrews, who's wonderful, who's the editor of the American Conservative, yeah. who's Eastern Orthodox, right? You know, and you know, she, she, her name is not Helen Andrewski, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and 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 it's really like the the level of ritualism in the Eastern Orthodox thing is just like, you know, once you feel like the kind of sickness of modernity, there was a strange like lesbian pseudo-Victorian cult in the 80s and 90s in the UK. I forget the name of this, unfortunately, but they sort of developed this... God, it was Miss something who ran this thing. And there were, like, weird, brilliant lesbians. They, like, created this award-winning you know, video game, right? And they had this whole sort of Victorian lesbian terminology where they're like, we're going to recreate the like Victorian world except lesbian. And like, you know, instead of having men and women, we'll have blondes and brunettes. And, and they refer to the modern world as the pit. Uh, and <laughs> there's something I'm like, I'm sort of afraid for my daughter to find out about this cult because she would instantly become a Victorian lesbian. And, <laughs> the, <laughs> and, and so, you know, like when I see these things, there's this like, there's this book that Chesterton wrote about a hundred years ago called very obscure Chesterton. It's called the return of Don Quixote. Yep, yep. Oh, you know that work. Yeah, um, a bit about Chesterton, yeah. And it's this sort of weird neo-reactionary fantasy in which basically kind of role-playing turns into, like, the restoration of, like, old England. Yeah. And it's kind of beautiful in a way, but there's also a counterpoint novel to it, which is perhaps even more obscure. It's by Kingsley Amos, who is a name that you must know. Yeah. And it's called Russian Hide and Seek, which is, have you ever read that? You know I've never it? read it, but I know of it. Yeah. You know of it. And it's this lovely and interesting piece because it's basically, it's set in a world where the Soviet Union has conquered Britain some time ago. And there's like a younger generation of Soviet occupying apparatchiks that becomes Anglophiles. And they get, like, into, like, Shakespeare and Morris dancing and all this, like, Anglo stuff. And they get so into it that they basically try to sort of revive old England and kind of LARP it. Mm. I don't want to give you any spoilers, but it doesn't end well. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, like, you know, and the book is really sort of about this kind of falsity of LARPing in a way it's like it's almost a rejoinder to the return of Don Quixote it's like you can never like go back to the past yeah and this is sort of like the difference between a neo-reactionary and like a reactionary is like as a neo-reactionary I have no authentic connection to the past you know where did I learn about you know my personal guru Thomas Carlyle was I a descendant of like a continuous chain of teachers from Carlyle to Ruskin to you know whoever no I found these books on like Sergey Brin at Google had them scanned and I started reading the Latter-day pamphlets or whatever and I'm just like 
this is the most amazing book ever written, <laughs> you know, and nobody has ever heard of it, you know, and like even Carlisle scholars don't really, they read like, you know, heroes and hero worship, which is, okay, it's fine, but it's second rate Carlisle, you know, and Carlisle, can I digress about Carlisle for a second? Please do. Can I, can I adore Carlisle, the Victorian Jesus? Carlisle was, he was like this liberal enfant terrible, he had this amazing breakout success with his history of the French Revolution, which is wonderful, which famously his friend John Stuart Mill, Carlyle lent the manuscript of the first volume of the French Revolution, which is this brilliant, scintillating book. I mean, honestly, you need to know the history of the French Revolution before you read it, you know, because it's a, it's a literary work, you know, it's not a Wikipedia page, right? No. Carlyle lends this to Mill. He leaves it on his desk. His charwoman thinks it's like scrap paper and burns it. <laughs> Carl has to write the whole thing over again. He does it. He writes the second volume. It's a smash success. You know, Carlisle, he's like a Victorian Hunterist Thompson. You know, his just facility with language is incredible. He, you know, creates all this. I mean, yeah, I think he's the only Victorian worth mentioning on the same page as Shakespeare. And so, you know, people love him. He's this genius. And then he writes this like, series of like pamphlets or texts on inspired by the revolutions of 1848 and they're just like everyone in England is of course delirious with joy over the revolutions of 18 it's like the Arab Spring all over again right you know and and it's a total Arab Spring experience you know they're like basically substitute you know Hungary for the Ukraine and you're there right you know and um, including the Russian part and and Carlyle writes this basically series of like anti-democratic anti-modern pamphlets and people are just like stunned by his switch from being the enfant terrible of liberal England to like a level of like reactionary that doesn't even exist like, it's off the scale, right? And, you know, basically, they're like, and Carlisle's asked about this, and he's like, yeah, I didn't really write these for today. These are for, for 200 years from now, you know? And we're about 180 years from now, you know? And you read these in the 21st century, and, you know, it's like two of these pamphlets are called Downing Street and the New Downing Street. And the New Downing Street is kind of his description of what a real statesman who he hopes will be Robert Peel, but Robert Peel dies, would do with England. And Downing Street is like, it has this, this very memorable description of like English politics in the 1840s, where his analogy is like, these are not really statesmen. They're just basically, they're like jockeys on a mad horse and they get elected and their only goal is to be on the horse and stay on the horse. And the horse is going around in circles, following his own like tracks and like doing just completely insane stuff. And they're like, he's on the horse. And he could be describing Boris Johnson, you know? <laughs> and he could absolutely be describing Boris Johnson, who gets elected and then 
before Dominic realizes that Boris's only goal is to be on the horse. Dominic Cummings, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, and his only goal—he's not trying to reinvent, you know, Whitehall or anything. No, yeah. he just wants to be on the horse in front of the TV cameras, right? You know, and the supermarket trolley was the yeah, yeah. He used. yeah, sure, right? Uh-huh. You know, we don't have horses anymore, right? You know, but um, the uh, the last horse died in the eighties, sometimes. You know? But um, what's a horse? What's a horse? Right? You know, but it's just like to sort of see this pattern in the mid 19th century and just like nail it and say, this is the future. Or he's basically like Carlisle somewhere else in the pamphlets is like, okay, here's the future of Christianity. It's starting to turn into this like milk and wetter thing. He could be describing Justin Welby. Right. You know, and um, like sort of the feeling of like prophecy is in this work. And it's written with this like, biblical feel you know you just like you start reading it and you're just like you're thrown into like the intensity of this drama it's just this incredible prescient work there's just nothing like it you can find it on the internet it's very easy to find it's free it doesn't cost you anything and reading the pamphlets was just like this like religious experience for me we better leave it there curtis but firstly, you've given a great plug to Carlisle there, but also we should plug Grey Mirror. Graymirror.substack.com. I'd like to thank you very much for coming in and um, not answering any of my boring questions. No, not at all. But giving brilliant answers brilliant nonetheless. Brilliant digressions. And uh, great pleasure to... And a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.